0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The caption for this morning is uh, to remember and proclaim. And I, I, it's interesting um, about this need to be remembered. Um, gosh, it's got to be now 14 years ago, more than that, close 16 um, 16 years ago, my brother and I were out one evening, and we were uh, co- attempted carjacked. Where people pulled out guns, put it through my car window, um, tried to take our, whatever we had, our money in our car, I guess. I'm assuming that because they didn't get either. Um, but it was interesting that experience because you, you, when you have those moments where everything flashes before you, um, you see your existence is very limited. And one of the things that happened over a little bit of time in the next couple of days, I started reflecting first, who would have taken care of my family? I had, at that point, a child that was 30 days old and another child that was 14 months old and then a seven-year-old and a wife. Who would have taken care of them? And, and as I thought more about that, truly, that if you stripped away all of the pretense that I want to be a father, I want to provide, I want to take care, there was a sense of me this thought, Who would they have become without me? Meaning that if I didn't get an opportunity to leave the impression of me on them, where would they have their identity? Think that through. I mean, shockingly selfish, thinking about nobody but themselves, but my concern really was that I wouldn't leave an impression of me on them. And what was interesting is, is that as I started to continue to work through that was the realization that that's not my job. My job is to leave an impression of Jesus working through me on them. So, you know, it's interesting how, how we come to terms with, with what our real job is and how God gets, us our, get, gets our attention. Now, having said this, I'll still confess, there's a part of me that would still like to be remembered when I'm gone right? That, that's a gimme. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably inherent in most of us, if not all of us, that there's something that says, when I'm gone, there would be something left over that would acknowledge and bear witness or testament to my existence. Um, I think in time, there's a guy named Tom Mywold, a few years ago, died of a 16-year battle of cancer. Uh, amazing witness through that trial and that fire. Um, his wife, I'm sure, he, he really um, he had a blog post where he kept you up to where he was internally in this whole ordeal and struggle. His wife, Amy, always said that he had a thing about seeds, about planting seeds. Um, because seeds are things that you place into the ground and nobody can even know that it's there. And in due course, it comes up. Um, and, and you're long gone at times when those seeds that were planted then bear fruit. Amy was going through his coat pockets after he had passed and um, reached into a pocket and pulled out a packet of seeds. And the particular packet of seeds were flowers called forget-me-nots. And you think about that as as we go forward, how how that really is there. We don't don't want to be forgotten. Um, our, Our whole culture of humanity... Um, seems to strive to build testaments and monuments to people's lives. Um, You know, there there are people who will set up endowments that when they're gone, so that, again, their name, their legacy, their image, some attribute of them will live on. Um, My Uncle Ronnie passed away many, many years ago. He was 42 when he died of brain cancer. Um, He had been a press secretary, I believe, for a U.S. congressman. And what his family did was set up an endowment to fund um, scholarships for kids going into journalism degrees. So let me ask you this. If you could be memorialized, what type of memorial would you like? Uh, maybe uh, we have golf outings and people's names. There are surf contests. Surfside Beach, there's a uh, contest they do every year to remember the, uh, an individual. How about a particular dance maybe being named after you? Maybe a scholarship again? What about having a beautiful place or a park named after you? You say, well, those are nice, but they're really not that nice, right, if you're honest about this. How about a special award being named after you? Maybe instead of the Oscars, they'll hand out the Shanks. Think about it. I like the way that sounds. I mean, I just, you know, the the famous rich people get something named after me. I'm good with that. Um, Instead of the Heisman, maybe how about the Kramer? You like it? That would work, wouldn't it? You know, we, we got to personalize this stuff. We, we're handing out the Kramer for the best football guy of the year. Um, so maybe what, what about the Randy Bowl instead of the Orange Bowl? Name the name, champion. And of course, it would have to be wherever Clemson plays. I know that. Uh, maybe instead of the Pulitzer, we give them an Ortiz. I like that once again. That's a good way to recognize people. Um, maybe we could build something in our name. You know, look, look at something like the Verrazano Bridge. Uh, or maybe a highway or something big. But, you know, the truth really is, is we'd all like some type of monument. We would all like some type of legacy. We would all like to leave something in our wake that says we had significance. And that significance lasts. So let me ask you a question opening. If, if you would like the world to remember you, how would we do it? And if you were lucky enough to be remembered, what would you like to be remembered for? Just two questions. If if the world were going to remember you, how would they do it? And if you were lucky enough to be remembered, what would you like to be remembered for? Um, So we're we're studying 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to give a little backdrop for those who have not been in the midst of studying the book of Corinthians. Um, It's called Our Pretty Ugly Bride, meaning that um, it was a church plan of Paul's. And obviously this church plant re- reflected or was bringing glory and honor to Christ, but in the same token, um, they were making a mess of everything. Um, it's what I call the woodshed letters, um, and it really is pretty accurate. I think in hindsight, having studied Corinthians now, it seems like every week he's taken them out behind the woodshed, and tonight, this, this morning is no, no exception to that. You know, when you have a letter that, or a chapter that ends, and when I come, I will give further directions, and all the news has been bad leading up to that moment, you know this is not good. Um, so it's, it's like a letter that ends that says, your trouble doesn't stop here. I'm coming. Um, so let me set the stage a little bit of what's going on. Paul, Paul has certain members in the Corinthian church, and, and he's rebuking them. Um, and he's saying that there are real consequences for your behavior with regard to how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, and it's interesting. So I went back, started looking at all the other Gospels on explaining what's the deal with the Lord's Supper. And I'm not going to go into the detail. It's interesting. Well, let me say this. When I teach, I often try to just take the text and break it apart and say, what does this mean? Where do we go? Rather than given a lot of philosophical ideas and theology behind things. Now, if there's theology, I like it. I'm going to touch upon it. Um, but I'm not going to break down a lot of what communion actually is um, and how people look at the the piece of bread or the cup of juice or the wine. Um, It's interesting, though, when I went back, I looked at John, um, which is really a book that was about with Jesus being God incarnate, and it spends uh, chapters 13 through 17 giving all this detail on what happened in this evening, and that evening is referred to as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. That was where Christ celebrated the final Passover Uh, with his disciples where then in that night they left, they went over to Gethsemane, Judas betrayed him, that was when Jesus prayed that prayer, take this cup from me if it be your will Um, they're praying, Judas betrays him they seize him and then they run him through trials all night, crucify him the next day Um, John gives a tremendous amount of teaching and detail washing the disciples feet Um, and there's very little again about this actual supper Um, Matthew and Mark give actual, um, just a little bit of detail. It's really, here's the cup, here's the, here's the bread, or break it, it's for you, drink it, and, and um, eat it. And, and uh, this, is, this is just something to commemorate. Luke actually is the only chapter that says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, so the practice in and of itself was celebrated in the context of an actual meal. So what the disciples were doing in this context is that they would gather together to have a literal meal. And in the course of that meal, toward the end of it, they would do this symbolic ritual, um, taking the cup and the bread and presenting it as a remembrance um, of what Christ did for us on the cross. So having um, said that, and I'll say one other thing before moving out of there, it was presumed that this practice was exclusively for believers. Um, there's no, it doesn't make a lot of sense why you would participate in this communion ceremony if you weren't a believer. Um, so churches, and I think docs in particular takes a view that this really is something for believers, that if you're not a believer, that we would ask that you would refrain from participating in this, um, because it's where we recognize this sacred act of acknowledging God's redemptive power through his son's death on a cross for our salvation. So if you didn't buy that or believe that, why for heaven's sake, would you want to go through this ritual with us when we hold this as something that's truly sacred, um, And set apart to give honor and glory to our God. So having said that, let me open up. We're going to read, uh, and I just typically am going to walk through the text. Verse 17, opening the text, it says, in the following directive, I have, oh, let me say one other thing I did. Sometimes the the version you read of the Bible, um, we, the the formal track in doxa is that we use an ESV, Now, that doesn't mean I have to use an ESV. It means we, and if I'm not considering myself part of the we this morning, I can use another version, right, Megan? Of course I can. Well, you can't back me up at this point because I did it already, so. But Randy could always say, don't come back. So he might. You never know. So having said that, I thumbed through this passage, and I looked at at the New American Standard, ESV, uh, New King James, and the NIV, which I not always am very happy with, and I actually used the NIV for this passage because I thought it was, it made a couple things really, it simplified them, um, and I thought there was more with that simplicity. Now, I could be wrong, but then again. So, verse 17, in the in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good, and boy, you, you got to think that if Paul were writing this letter to us, it's like, no, there's good news and bad here. Bad news here. Obviously, the bad news is Paul is speaking to the church. The good news is he's not present. That's the way I'd be looking at this. Well, it's only a letter, okay? Um, sadly, um, it's he, he's really, he's taken them out back now. Paul continues, verse 18 and 19. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there is divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Um, And what he's obviously saying is that uh, there are some of you that are getting it right, but the sad fact is that displays the disparity between those who are getting it right and those who are getting it wrong. Um, So let me keep reading. 20. Uh, So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead and Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Um, So the context here again, um, like actually when I was looking at the... um, Some Bibles will give topical headings or captions to kind of give you a heads up, which I really like. Again, if you're new to Bible study, studying the Bible is not easy. Um, There's a lot of translations. There's a lot of history to put in place. So then you read some of these things and you go, what's really going on here? The uh, caption in my Bible said, correcting an abuse of the Lord's Supper. And I think the abuse is really pretty strong language by saying that not only have you kind of dropped the ball, but what you're doing reflects more of a blatant disregard for this ritual. Um, and that's pr- obviously pretty strong language. So what was happening here, again, the churches would gather together. They would celebrate um, something. They would call it the Lord's, Su- Lord's Supper. Or there were also other terms like the uh, love feast was another term that they used. Um, and the objective really was to bring the body together for a community as a community event, Um, Acts uh, chapter 2 verses 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer meaning that this body was a body that was meeting on a very regular basis Um, and not only would they study and encourage one another but they would have a meal together and incorporate into that meal um, this ritual of the Lord's Supper. Um, The word communion actually means from having in common. So what they would do typically is they would bring food um, and they would pool it. Um, Here's something to kind of put in in, in a little bit of context. Um, You had an, an amazing disparity of wealth in the early church. You would go from incredibly wealthy Roman citizens to people who were slaves. And I don't think in America we can get a full snapshot of that. Imagine some of you have traveled outside of America. Go to somewhere like Haiti, India, the third world, the Philippines, and find somebody who is poor. And what I mean by poor is that they typically will have one set of clothing. They will have not bathed outside of a mud puddle bath. Um, period, not occasionally, not a period of time. There's no such thing as real bathing taking place. Um, They would have no real shelter. Um, Many people would be homeless. Um, There would be a horrific stench that followed them around. Um, And basically, they would scavenge for food, Um, meaning that morning they got up hungry with no idea whether or not they would have their next meal then compare that to somebody within our culture that's probably worth $100 million and put them together in the same setting. That's what we're encountering in the Corinthian church, the extreme in the economic background. So they, so, and here's sadly what was happening. You would have these gatherings. They would set the time and the place. The wealthy members would show up, bring their own food, own alcohol, and eat their own meal in the midst of these people who brought nothing and had nothing. And that's where Paul kind, of, Paul kind of blows a gasket by saying, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So imagine if you had a beggar literally sit down at a table with you, and I've spoken of food in the past, so we've got to bring up Rios. But imagine bringing a homeless person who is hungry to Rios, sitting them next to the table and saying, but you can't eat. You can't pay your way. You're not eating with me. And then I go ahead and have six margaritas and, and gorge myself on meat while this person sits there. That's the equivalent of what Paul was saying was taking place here. That's pretty extreme. Thus, you would see the word, why do you despise the Lord's suffer? To despise something is to hate it with a passion. So there's the context of what's actually happening here. Um, it's, it's, I'm going to say this, because when I look at this, We have no such disparity in our American churches today. Do you know why? We have economically segregated our churches. Think about that. Go to to any church here and and look for somebody who is dirt poor. Um, Look for somebody who comes in smelling because they haven't bathed in a week. Find a church where people are homeless, and you're not going to find the other wealthy 5% of the body of Christ attending that same church, typically, generally speaking. I mean, I've been going to church for a while, 25 years. I don't see a lot of churches that are that welcoming to that disparity of that uh, economic divide. So we we wouldn't even experience this, but imagine what it would look like if you did take the wealthiest 5% of the American population and put them in the poorest 5% and put them together as a church. And then we watch them and see how well they would get along. Okay, think about that. And the problem always here, and we, we ran into this with the idle food when I taught a little ways back. The problem is, is that the poor can't accommodate the rich. The rich must accommodate the poor because they're the ones that have to dress down, All right? They're the ones that gotta come And and say, uh, okay, I'll forego what I have. I'll forego or I'll give so I can bring you to a level where we can share something in common. Um, And that's what's taking place. Imagine what it would look like in a church like that during Christmas. If you have the top 5% doing their Christmas thing. And I'll say this, Christmas in our household, if you took that bottom 5%, we would look filthy rich. We would look extravagant. And I wonder how we would feel if those people were left in our midst. But because we've segregated, it's out of sight, out of mind, it doesn't really matter. And we can move about and have our Merry Christmas ourselves. Um, You know, I, I just wonder about that. When I look at that setting, I kind of scratch my head and I say, have we... And, and the difficulty here is that we're not even comfortable with that, generally speaking. We don't want to feel uncomfortable in church. We don't want to feel uncomfortable in our home. We don't want to feel uncomfortable on how we use our worldly wealth. No, first of all, because I worked hard to get there, right? And I deserve the blessing and provision of my labor, right? And that's how I, that's how I look at myself and how I can justify my standard of living. And we simply see this come to light in a church in Paul's day because it's not coming to light in America in our day. Let me give you just a principle here, and I'm going to move. I'm going to leave this, but, but the, let me throw this out because this came to me and I'm not going to spend time here. The principle is this. The use of one's wealth indicates one's state of spiritual maturity. The use of one's wealth indicates one's true state of spiritual maturity. The use of one's wealth indicates one's true state of spiritual maturity. And what I'm saying, and I think is what we see consistently, if you, if you really look at Scripture, that's what comes to the surface. Where's your heart? Because if your heart really is in a particular place, it's going to affect your wallet. See, if Jesus really has your hu- wallet, or your heart, excuse me? I, tithing is a mood issue to me. If he's got my heart, why would I not acknowledge him in my world? How could I not acknowledge him in my worldly provision and how well and abundantly he has blessed me? And then you get to keep nine out of ten. That's a good deal as far as I'm concerned. I'm being a little facetious, but again, if you look, if you want to see what's going on within somebody, um, and the problem is, is even in our, with our standard of living and our material wealth, um, to call our tithing at a certain level sacrificial is almost a joke, at least in my lifestyle and how I live. Um, because do I really experience foregoing something that I would like? You know what the answer is? No. No, I can budget that somewhere else. I can skip the kids' braces and I can get that. No, I'm joking about the kids' braces. I'm working on that, by the way. I'm working on it, Mary, so stick with us. Um, but, but really, if you think that through... If you think it through, we can, well, if you really want that dress or you really want that toy or you really want that, you know, whatever it is, bow and arrow set, you're going to get it. You are. Um, So, having said that, I just, that's what I saw come to the surface. So let me move on. Keep reading. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death until he comes. So Paul kind of reiterates what the gospels actually said. It's a very simple statement of words, and it accomplishes two basic things. First, we're doing this as a remembrance of what Christ did for us. It's an acknowledgement. It's a reminder. It's tying a spiritual string around your finger so you don't forget Sunday morning why we really gather. And that's what they're doing. So when you have a ritual, I can sit here and give you words, or I can give you a tangible item. And what happens by giving you words and the tangible item and then making you participate in the ritual, it takes on greater significance. And the significance is to remember that we're here as a redeemed people through nothing but the blood that was shed on a cross, the sacrificial death to redeem fallen humanity and reconcile them to God through Christ accepting our punishment on a cross. And that's what we're remembering here. The body obviously being, the, the, the bread being the body and the, and the wine or the juice being the blood. Um, we have a tangible reminder. Both of which, again, really um, represent uh, the giving of his life in satisfaction of our death penalty imposed for sinning against God. So this act is something that is central to our faith. You know what's interesting? There's nothing else in Scripture. Sammy and I were talking this week. I said, is there anywhere else in Scripture that we find Christ saying, if you want to remember me, do this. There's nothing else. Now, as a Christian, we do certain things in furtherance of the gospel, but there was nothing that Christ said, you want to acknowledge me, you want to honor me, do this. Communion is to do this. There's nothing else. Very simple. Um... I wrote this down. I love this. If you take the cross out of Christianity, uh, you gut Christianity. You no longer have Christianity. So what what they were doing with regard to the communion celebration was making sure... See, we could come here and, and you could hear somebody talk Sunday morning and I'm sure there have been Sundays or in my old history, in my old life, Monday nights, where I could have said stuff that was nothing short of gibberish. But If you incorporate communion into your service, you'll never miss the point of why we're here. And that's the big deal. We can't miss the point when you participate in the communion. The second thing Paul tells us, he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So one thing is a remembrance, and the second is a proclamation. Could you imagine if you just showed up on earth for the first time and you watched us this morning? you say, These guys are nuts. Now, there, ain't no, there aren't other dead people walking around anymore. There's no history of dead people coming back to life except who we claim is our Lord and Savior. So if you showed up here, they're singing toward this dead guy that they believe came back to life. He hasn't been around for 2,000 years, and they say he dwells in spirit within us and makes us happy and gives us freedom from, from this affliction of sin's curse and gives us an assurance of things to come. And that's why they're here, and they're all smiling and happy about it. They're crazy. I mean, that's what your response should be if you didn't experience what we call the new birth. This is crazy. You should be playing golf Sunday morning, right? It's a nice day, too, and it's the spring. So by coming here and participating in the communion, it's a proclamation to the world of what Jesus did on a cross. It is how we lift up the cross. It is how we acknowledge what Jesus did for us. It is how we acknowledge the power of God to overcome sin. It is how we say that we, as fallen sinful men are now made right with God. It is how we declare that men now have peace with God. And it's how we celebrate the hope of a guarantee that he will return for us. Verse 25 also says something. I just want to touch upon this. It says, this this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, and this was another version that I looked up. I think this was the New American Standard. This do as often as you drink, drink it, in remembrance of me. And, and the significance there was in the words, as often as. And, and the early church obviously understood this because at every time they gathered for a supper, they would tack on the communion. It was a regular tradition. It was This is one of the things that sold me on Doxa, by the way. Um, good move, Randy, in promoting communion, saying we're going to do communion every week because to me... That's a big deal. I love doing communion. It's, it's again, it's the ringing the bell of the, the spiritual head saying, This is what has been done for us. And we get to acknowledge this redemption, this, this, this salvation that we have. Um, and I just kind of scratched my head um, on why it's not done. In all church meetings, when people gather, Wednesday night service, we used to do a Sunday night service uh, back where I was in in Mississippi for a while, which I loved, um, to just come at an altar and kneel and pray, and and when you were ready, you'd lift your head up and they would come over, Um, and they would join you in prayer at the altar if you needed prayer. Um, To me, that takes on the fullness of what it means to be a member of this collective body called Christianity. So um, there's also nothing that says this needs to be sanctified. Uh, This can only be done by certain people. I know people who do matzahs and grape juice at their home, and they'll sit down and read scripture together, have a community of people come over and do communion. Um, And and that really is actually the way it was done in the early church. Um, and, And there are some people that would say, no, 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 we have to do it according to certain other protocols. Well, they're not in the Bible, at least the one I'm reading. So let me move on. Verse 27. So then, or therefore, it's conclusory here, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I'm trying to keep track of my time. Am I punching the right number? I'm not even getting the right number in. All right, there we go. Good. So then, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine himself before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So the question is really this, what is in an unworthy manner? And the answer is very easy. It's the way they were doing it there that they were going through, and they were not together as a community of believers. The people that went there, the wealthier people obviously went there with an agenda, to um, have a meal, um, and, and, and that meal was, they went there to gratify themselves in food and in alcohol, and it was at the expense of those sitting around who had nothing. It was completely a, what does this do for me mentality as they approached this gathering, and I think that is clearly the point, is that if we come to the table, and, and this is all about me, it has nothing to do with Christ, that's unworthy. Um, and, I, and I think in this context, I think that's pretty simple. Um, the word unworthy really imputes an improper manner, meaning um, doing something that is not according to the protocol of the way they should have been doing it. So the next question then becomes obviously concerns, what does examining uh, oneself mean? And again, in the, in the context of this examining oneself, it's to assure oneself that they're approaching the table with holy reverence for the occasion. So you pause and say, is this about me, or am I coming to honor and acknowledge God and his sacrificial death for my sin? And it's it's a quick check. Where am I? Is this okay? Um, This was the act of remembering um, this death, and, and then it was a proclamation to the world of what I stand for and what I believe he accomplished. That's really the plain reading of this. Now, for years, and I'll say this myself, I have come here to do communion, and when we would read Examine Yourself, I'm thinking, oh, what kind of week have I had? And then I do this in my head, I go, "Um, well, I've been short-tempered, arrogant, selfish, and very petty, um, and I probably owe three people an apology. Um, And and this is the reason that, now, knowing that, should I come to the table? And I think there's almost an impression with some people that, no, you need to go and clean up this mess. You need to get right. Well, wait a minute. I can't get right. That's the whole problem. I was condemned in my own sin before a holy God and damned. Nothing has really changed except that, that, that Christ threw a death on a cross that I've been able to have received him as Lord and Savior. In Lou, he says, I accept the penalty for my behavior before a holy God. So now I am judgment-free. I am judgment-proof. And that's the reason I go to the table, to rejoice that I am judgment-proof, that in spite of who I am and in spite of who I know I will be tomorrow, when I stop and hit pause before I take communion this morning, I go, blew it again, dropped the ball. You know, I actually dropped it on somebody's foot, too. And didn't even say I'm sorry, and I moved about like they were in my way, and I thought, how how inconsiderate of you to be in my way when I dropped the ball. You should have looked out, and then I move about my business. That that is the state I move in most of the time. Now, if the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, if I'm tuned into the Holy Spirit, I'm prayed up, I've been fellowshipping with other believers, my conscience is heightened, so I'm not that callous a person all the time, minus sleeping. Um, so I'm not that person all the time, so yes, obviously I've learned that I have to be conscious of my behavior, but if you really strip all of that way, it's still a self-righteous front that I think I'm doing a good job myself, because if you extract out the grace of God, I'm still that fallen, rotten, putrefying piece of a human being before a holy God who is in need of damnation. So now when I step back and I'm quiet, and I think that's a healthy exercise, period, I don't think in context of this passage that's what they're saying, though. I mean, at least with this passage, saying examine yourself. It's to say that I'm coming here to acknowledge Christ. We know what we find when we examine Jonathan on a regular basis. So even if I, even if I have an outstanding amends, guess what? I'm coming to this table because I am in desperate need of this Redeemer. And if I can't acknowledge him, I'm damned. I'm damned. Psalm 51:17 tells us this, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What a what a great Psalm. You want to put something to memory? There are some fantastic verses that you write on your heart. Because what, what he's really saying here is that if I can come to him and acknowledge where I really am, God says that's good enough. Because I'm usually then in a state to be led and used for the power of the Holy Spirit to his honor and glory. Let me read verse 29 coming down the home stretch. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under ju- such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. What he says is that some of those people who'd come and approach this table without acknowledging that it's exclusively about the redemptive work of Christ and the hope of his return, without that, God is saying, I afflicted people. Weakness, literally just a weakening of the flesh, a sickness, and in some people were put to death. That's a little uncomfortable for us in a modern-day church to say that God will kill some of us or sicken us if we approach that table in an unworthy manner. My question would be, has anything changed in 2,000 years from the time it was written to present right now? And the answer is no. Should that make us sweat a little bit? I hope so. <laughs> you know, I hope so. Because... If if we're not going to sweat here, when are we going to sweat? If we're not going to sweat here, where are we going to sweat? John, 1 John 5.16 is another one of these verses. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, so again, they're inferring there are sins that lead to death. But if you see your brother blowing it, and that sin's not going to lead him to death, uh, it says, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit the sin that, not, that lead not unto death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, meaning there are some people that are sinning within the body of Christ, saved people, that we should step back and say, let them go, which, again, is really pretty hard. But if, they're, if it's a sin that will not lead unto death, they're saying we should rebuke them and say, hey, need to cut it out. The principle here is very simple. The Lord's Supper is a solemn and serious affair. The Lord's Supper is a solemn and serious affair. I would say this, that as a collective body, we do nothing more solemn or serious than participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm going to make a comment here that if, if somebody comes to church and they don't approach the table with this reverence, um, and they are afflicted, I will say this, that I believe that God will let them know there's a correlation between how they approach the table and their affliction. And here's why I say this. Have any of us who have children ever disciplined their kid? So you bring them in the room, you spank them, and they say, why did you spank me? And I say, none of your business. Has a parent ever done that? Well, I hope not. (laughs) I hope not. And here's the point. The objective of a loving father's discipline, which is what we're talking about here, is to curtail their behavior or to bring it into conformity to meet certain standards. And if God would not disclose that our affliction is the result of failing to meet the standards on approaching the table, that would make God into a monster. Because how could we even know what we're doing wrong if the the, the correlation with the affliction and how we approach the table isn't made clear? And it's just a point that I pulled out of this, body, this passage. So having said that, um, I think it just makes sense that God would let us know that. So what is the application for this principle about the Lord's Supper being solemn or serious? Um, when we come to the table, um, it is to be with the mindset that this ritual is done as a remembrance of Jesus' great sacrifice for us. And that in coming to this table, we're proclaiming the redemptive work found in the Lord's death on a cross. And our hope, our confidence, our belief is that he is coming back. Closes out, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should, uh, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat uh, something at home. And there's your very simple kind of just the answer. Well, don't If you're hungry, real hungry, and you want a big meal, do it at home. There's his rebuke. Uh, along with saying there's real consequences. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions, which is like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear that. So let me ask you a question. When I'm gone, do you know what I'd like you to remember about me? When I'm gone, I'd like you to remember really one or two things. When I'm gone, I'd like you to remember that there is one who will never forget about me. That's what I want you to remember, that there is one who will never forget about me, and that there is one who will never forget about you, and that there is one who has an eternal destiny set for all who call upon the name of the Lord, that there is one who will use my life and who will use your life in a manner that will have eternal significance, You know what the difference is between every monument that man erects and the commemoration of the Lord's Supper is? The man's memorials recognize the sacrifice contribution and the memory of the dead. The Lord's Supper recognizes the sacrifice of one who was dead but is now living. It recognizes one who was dead but is now living. And Christ calls us, not from the grave, but from the throne of God. Boy, that's a big deal. That's something to build a memorial to. And through this ritual that we declare this morning in communion, it's a remembrance to the world that through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon a cross, we are now united with God our Father, and we are now waiting his return. Boy, if that ain't great news, I don't know what is. So to us, as a collective body called the church, we gather weekly, more than weekly, hopefully. Uh, We gather to sing in praise and worship. We gather to present tithes and offerings. We gather to be taught. But we also gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate this Lord's Supper. We do this to remember and to proclaim our hope, and our hope alone in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your words. Lord, I pray that if there was something spoken that wasn't right, you would strike it from their mind. And Father, I just rejoice, because you know what? It won't last anyway. Uh, It is your words, your truth, your plan that is right, that is eternal, and will last. Your word is enduring. Father, what a great thing we have this morning to stand here, to come before you, uh, it, it, to be steadfast in our confidence uh, that we are unworthy and that is okay. Boy, what a relief, God. We thank you so much. And again, Lord, I pray I pray for the person coming here who didn't think it would be okay uh, to be having a horrible day and be here. Lord, they belong here with us. Um, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you bring all of us here this morning. And I pray uh, that we would remember and that we would hope and that all this would be in your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.